This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week via Zoom, David Keppel. He's a writer and activist. He's been an activist at least since the 1980s. And first, I'd like to say, David, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. It's good to be here. You started being an activist in the 1980s. And let's go back to the 1980s because in that era, Nuclear weapons were seen as the biggest threat to human existence. Now that threat in the popular mind, it seems to have been supplanted by the pandemic and climate catastrophe. Yet the world remains in peril. You know, there is still some 3,700 operational nuclear weapons armed and targeted, controlled by the various nuclear powers on this globe. You're absolutely right. The, the, there are two existential crises face humanity. By existential, I mean not only that they're a threat for the present, but that they could virtually end life on Earth. One is climate change, and the other is the nuclear weapons threat. Not only, David, are there 3,700 nuclear weapons all ready to go, that is among 14,000 total nuclear weapons owned and operated by the various nuclear powers. But you know what I found out, David? Back in 1986, there were 70,000 nuclear weapons on this planet. David, as we go on in the program, I'll give some of the props describing you. But first, I want to ask you this. Do you think we're any safer now regarding nuclear holocaust than we were in, say, 1986? The short answer is no. You know, I, Michael, the way I deal with numbers is one, two, three, many. The fact is that when you get start counting over three and you're talking about nuclear weapons, you're talking about a catastrophe. It's true that, there were, that in, the, in, in the 1970s and 80s, there were many more nukes deployed. But with the 1,500 nuclear weapons that the, that the former Soviet Union, that Russia has, and the 1,600 deployed nuclear weapons that the United States has, if those weapons are used, that will be the end of life on Earth. It is meaningful if you get greater numbers because there's a greater possibility of chaos and of falling into a nuclear war. I'm not saying that it wouldn't matter if we, went, if we started an uncontrolled arms race, as Mr. Trump wants to do, and went back to those high numbers. That would be a disaster. But in terms of what happens once the weapons start firing, with anything like 1,500, indeed with far fewer, it's likely, indeed certain, that there would be a catastrophe that truly ended life on Earth. And in that sense, this crisis is even more existential than the climate crisis. The second problem is that we have more 
actors in the game. Let's not distract ourselves by talking about Iran and North Korea. No, 91% of the world's arsenals are in US and Russian hands. It's our responsibility in the first instance, because you're, how are you going to go to Iran, which doesn't have a single nuclear weapon, and say you're the nuclear threat to life on Earth when you're holding 1,600 of them? It, 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 I mean, uh, the American capacity for hypocrisy is almost boundless, but that's over the limit. Let me use a descriptor that's been used many times before. It's madness. Now, David is at this point an organizer for the Bloomington Peace Action Coalition. He also is the chair of the Just Peace Task Force of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Bloomington. Now, as I say, you got involved in anti-nuclear weapon activism back in the 1980s. How did that happen? Well, in, in the 1980s, the threat was obvious. I met some of the activists in the nuclear freeze campaign uh, where I lived in, in the Connecticut shoreline, uh, mm -hmm. which actually was one of the most defense-dependent regions in the country because we're right near electric boat and the submarines. And I got involved in that, and then I got in, and, and then that was so compelling at the time that uh, I became full-time. I was the fundraiser for the Connecticut Peace Campaign, which had two permanent staff members. I was a member of the board, and I was the fundraiser and used to hold fancy receptions down in Greenwich where we, 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 we uh, tapped some of the Connecticut wealth for good purpose. And I was, I was a member of that one million person march in New York City on June 12th, 1982. I don't know whether you may have seen in the, in, that there's a movie called The Man Who Saved the World. It's about a Russian launch officer, Stanislav Petrov, who had the wisdom, got us, in 1983, he got a sign that, that uh, American missiles were on the way. And he right. had the wisdom not to fire. And, and if he hadn't made that decision, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. But many times there have been false signs that a nuclear attack was on the way from both sides. That just shows how tenuous our safety is in these times. Absolutely. The most dangerous of all, incidentally, was later in 1983. And uh, uh, NATO had a military exercise that was simulating a Western military attack, or a, a nuclear attack on the Soviets. Well, the only problem, Michael, was <laughs> that the Soviets had a plan for a real nuclear attack disguised as a military exercise. Oh. So when they saw this military exercise, they interpreted it in the light of their disguised real attack. And we came within a hair's breadth again, that time, of, of ending the world. Just dumb luck. Uh, absolutely, in those cases, dumb luck. Now, you have to say that Although I, I remember standing on a street corner in Hartford, Connecticut, 
chanting Ronald Reagan, he's no good, send him back to Hollywood. <laughs> however, however, even Ronald Reagan, coached by his Soviet uh, peer, Mikhail Gorbachev, said that nuclear war can never, can never be won and must never be fought. That's what he came to after that. An interesting thing, David, is that almost universally since the JFK presidency, every time a new president comes into office and gets debriefed on not only what our nuclear arsenal is like, but what nuclear war would be like, they come away utterly chastened. They come away changed people, as did Ronald Reagan. I haven't heard the 45th president of the United States be especially chastened. That is correct. That is the odd thing in that every president said, oh my God, this is crazy. We can't do this. Donald Trump, on the other hand, and you said this in a, a radio op-ed in March 2017, you said, quote, Mr. Trump welcomes a nuclear arms race and says he wants to be, quote from him, top of the pack. What the heck does that mean? It, it, it means nothing except that weapons that can end the world are in extremely dangerous hands. And that raises another issue. And that is that, in theory, Congress, not the president, decides when we go to war. Right. But the exception for that is nuclear war. And the theory during the Cold War was, well, somebody might hit our weapons and the president would have to decide in just a few minutes. And therefore, we have what Harvard professor Elaine Scarry calls a nuclear, a thermonuclear monarchy is the term of her book. That, and it's one of the most urgent things that Congress needs to do is to say that the president may not use nuclear weapons without obtaining congressional authorization. There is no excuse, and this notion that we have to use our nukes in just 15 minutes is nonsense, because we have, although the world wouldn't survive a nuclear attack, our nuclear weapons would. Uh, we have nuclear weapons in submarines down in the depths of the sea that could launch a devastating retaliatory attack. Uh, long after we were all dead. Well, I mean, we have plans for World War IV, Michael. <laughs> oh, my God. Although you know, you know Einstein's comment about that. Tell he us. He, he did not know with what, uh, he didn't know what weapons World War III would be fought with, but World War IV would be fought with sticks and stones. However, it was a little optimistic because there'll be no one to use the sticks and stones. <laughs> Maybe the roaches will evolve. Maybe the roaches. <laughs> now, here's the thing. A, a couple of recent books of the last few years, one was by Fred Kaplan. It was called The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. The other was by the famous Daniel Ellsberg. Ah, uh, I know Dan, yes. That's the Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. And hey, that's what Daniel Ellsberg did in the 50s and 60s. He was a nuclear war planner. Well, exactly. That, that book, that, if I have any book to recommend that everyone read, 
and it's riveting reading. It now, is that book, The Doomsday Machine. Now, both and, of those books lead us uh, uh, to this point. We've all been told time and again that only the president can order the launch. But the truth is, that's never really been true. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the theory, this goes back to the theory that there would be a decapitating nuclear strike. And so the, uh, the uh, uh, nuclear authority is delegated. But of course, the problem with that, I mean, Ellsberg has a classic case back in the 50s when he was talking to, to the commander of, of a battleship that had nuclear weapons on it. And, and Dan said to the guy, well, you know, what would happen if you lost communications? And he said, well, I would fire. Right. And, and Ellsberg said, but, you know, isn't that a risk? And he said, well, I wouldn't want to be left out. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, so that means that there are many people out there, probably on both sides, the United States and Russia, many people who have control of nuclear weapons on their boats, on their planes, in their theaters of operation, who can say, go. Well, and there's only one problem with what you just said, and it's the main noun, people. We're not only talking about people. We're ah. talking about automated response. And so it's even more dangerous. And, and, and the title of the book, The Doomsday Machine, you know, it, 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 it's taken deliberately from Dr. Strangelove. If you've never seen that classic film, go out and take you it out bet. of the Monroe County Public Library. But the truth, as Dan points out in that book, is the reason that this, uh, this devastating satire is so devastating is that Kubrick had a source. And this, this, you remember there's a comic British officer in the movie. Yes. A, yeah. Mandrake. A little, a little, a little stiff, but and with all the British mannerisms, but he's slightly less insane than the American general, who was a portrayal of Curtis LeMay. Well, that, that comic British figure was actually the leaker who had oh. informed Kubrick of the, uh, of this insane situation. And the, the, but the point that Dan is making in his book is that that doomsday machine remains to this day. And wow. it lies in the reality, as Dan says, I was rereading the passage this morning. If a single nuclear weapon, let's not talk about 1,500, if a single nuclear weapon launched by the United States lands in Russia, the entire system goes into spasm. Huh. The, the idea that you can fight a limited nuclear war is the most dangerous fantasy in the entire book. And the most dangerous element of the current moment is that we are building a new generation of nuclear weapons that are designed to be usable. And yeah. one of the final acts of the late Senator Richard Luger when he was dying was to write a letter to Congress saying that the most dangerous aspect of, the, of these new nuclear weapons was the myth that uh, a nuclear war could be limited. He said, there is no such thing as a limited war 
and preparing for one, in his words, is folly. He, he sent that letter to the, to the Senate, and it has not been heeded. David, I recall that in the immediate hours after 9-11, any number of people, people on the street were saying, let's just nuke them. Kabul or whatever town, whatever city, where whoever is responsible for this stuff resides, let's just nuke them. It ain't that simple, David. Well, not only that, but human nature being what it is, I mean, that moment of anger is probably, to be realistic over the period of future history, not going to be the only moment of such anger. Right. And that is the reason that the only way we are going to survive, Michael, is to get rid of these weapons, get rid of every single one of them on Earth. That is not a, a, a sentiment that is as strong today as it was when you began in the 1980s, and isn't that a shame? Well, it's because people don't have the visceral understanding. But, you know, I've been an activist through ups and downs. That's the nature of being a long-term activist. And I can, uh, I just know, I know the period when we said we can't get any attention to climate change. Right. Well, now we've got attention to climate change. What we have to do is to conduct this as a, as a campaign uh, on existential issues. And we have to understand we have two existential issues here. We also very much have to work for social justice which can tie us together. But, you know, I think the very, there are horrible forms of social injustice in our world today, racial, economic, etc. But the greatest of all these forms of injustice is generational. Hmm. That you and I have had some kind of life. If we were to die tomorrow, we've had some kind of life. Right. But there are, we are, we are threatening the very existence of those to come. And if there's one thing that, whether you're religious or, or whether you just believe in evolution, it's an evolutionary crime. It's a crime against the life that we enjoy, it, that we have been given. It, it, it is to deny life to future generations. My guest this week, David Keppel, he's a writer and activist. David, we've mentioned several times Russia and the Soviet Union, and I believe, David, you were almost born in the Soviet Union. Well, my father was a, a United States Foreign Service officer uh, who went to Moscow in 1947, first as a consular officer, but he, print, he rapidly became a political reporting officer, which in, in the jargon is called a Kremlinologist. And he was the first guy who caught the split in the Soviet leadership following Stalin's death. And he did so based upon a small wording difference between the wording of Pravda and the wording of Izvestia, the government paper. Mm -hmm. And then he was the aide, you know, the State Department used to work by telegrams, long cables. That, and he was the guy who, who drafted the cables that then Ambassador Charles Bolin at the time. He also knew George Kennan, but Kennan rapidly got declared persona non grata. Kennan was a more natural professor 
than an ambassador. But Bolin was the great professional in those days. And what they were trying to persuade Washington of, you know, Washington was in the grip of this demagogue, Joseph R. McCarthy, who was warning about communists in the State Department. Well, it was not an easy time to be trying to tell Washington that actually the, the Soviet Union was changing somewhat. And uh, it didn't mean they weren't communists, you know, it didn't mean we agreed with them on everything, but it did mean that we had to understand that we could coexist with them. And that is what we have to understand today, whether we're talking about Iran or we're talking about China or, or whoever we're talking about, we have to respect our differences and we have to respect the fact that people are fellow human beings and we it's just an existential necessity to live in peace. David, uh, you have been working for years and years and years, going on decades, on a book. The title of it is Creative Uncertainty, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Not Knowing. First off, what is creative uncertainty, number one? And number two, uh, how did this start? Let's first uh, try to answer what it is. Uncertainty in its fundamental meaning doesn't mean just that you don't know the answer. Uncertainty in the, you know, there's a term called radical uncertainty or uncertainty of the first kind and uncertainty of the second kind. Uncertainty of the first kind just means you don't know. Uncertainty of the second kind means the future is fundamentally open. That is the kind of uncertainty, and it is at the root, Michael, of everything, everything. We wouldn't even have a universe if it weren't for that. Huh. But hu humanity over its history has sought to control, to predict and to control the world we live in. And it is the root of our technology. It's the, it, it, it is the machine model. And fundamentally, the reason that we are in an existential crisis, Michael, is that we treat the world of life as if it were a machine. And we do not live in a machine world. We live in an uncertain world. And that is not, it's not, but it isn't only something we should try to get rid of. This is the point of creative uncertainty. We, we can never get rid of uncertainty. We have to learn to live with it creatively. It seems to me that the essence of becoming an adult is accepting that there is uncertainty. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, hum, humans are a very young species. So in terms of becoming an adult, we're right at the cusp of our adulthood as a species. And the question is, will we accept the terms of existence or will we destroy our world and therefore ourselves? In May 2019, David, you wrote an article in The Nation. It was entitled, 13 Questions All Presidential Candidates Must Answer About Nuclear War. Do you recall what a couple of those questions were? And I wonder, has the current president answered any of them? Well, let me take the most important or the most revealing of those questions. 
and it actually made it into the Democratic presidential debate a few months ago. Huh. And that was, if you are president, would you pledge that the United States would never be the first to use nuclear weapons? In other words, we will not start a nuclear war. Right. And now, President Trump has made no such pledge, and, and there's no reason to think he would. He's done nothing but pursue more and more destabilizing weapons. David, um, has any president ever made that pledge? Barack Obama wanted to, and he got talked out of it, I'm very sorry to say, at the end of his administration. And uh, some of his senior foreign policy advisors talked him out of it, but, but some others still regret that he didn't make it. And that, in terms of a goal that I would have for if were Joe Biden to be elected, I would have a goal of getting him to do it. Now, in the Democratic debate, in, in one of those Democratic debates, they were asked, and uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren clearly said yes. And then the moderator was rather shocked by this, said why, and Senator Warren gave the correct answer. She said, because it would make us safer. And the reason it would make us safer is that if people know you're not going to strike first, then they don't go to hair trigger alert. Now, we're not talking about a mere declaration. You're going to have to take that and translate it into a military doctrine and then a system of deployments. You're going to have to cancel the weapons that are designed to strike first. But because, Michael, because there's a certainty that the other side will strike back, and because there's no way you'll get away with a limited nuclear war, going first is folly. It simply guarantees that you'll destroy the world. That's all there is to it. That's what the doomsday machine means. The doomsday machine means once you start this thing, you're doomed. The whole, the whole system goes into spasm. My guest this week has been David Keppel of Bloomington, Indiana, writer and anti-nuclear weapons activist, has been since the 1980s, which was, as I say, the high watermark of nuclear weapons on this, on this planet. But guess what? They're still out there in the thousands. Go ahead, David. Okay. Well, I want to, I want to end, though, with a note of hope. All and right. That, and, and, and that is that just as the freeze movement, in the 80s had a major role in putting the brakes on, on, the, on the weapons. We here in Bloomington Peace Action Coalition have a chance to take local action on this issue. And BPAC, Bloomington Peace Action Coalition, is bringing to the Bloomington City Council a resolution calling for a halt to the arms race and for Bloomington to take some concrete steps in that direction. For example, the city could decide not to, not to do business where there's any alternative with companies that are nuclear weapons contractors. Nuclear weapons is a topic that scares the hell out of all of us, but some positive, perhaps optimistic words from writer and activist David Keppel. David, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you very much for this conversation, Michael. 